Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. This is John Green, and I'm the host. I'm thankful you're with us here. We're, uh, we are a couple of days after Christmas, ready for the first Sunday after celebrating the Nativity, the Incarnation of Jesus. Uh, we had a good Christmas. It was a, certainly an interesting Christmas. We had some snow here in western North Carolina. Um, snuck up on us, actually. Suzanne and I had gone out and gotten some Chinese food, actually, for Christmas Eve. And um, I had done the podcast for Christmas Eve and then said, you know what, let's just go ahead and get that stuff now. We were going to wait until later. But then, for whatever reason, I just felt like, eh, let's go ahead and get it now. We can eat it later. And so late afternoon, maybe 4, 30, 5 o'clock, we went out and picked it up. And it was raining and nasty, and it was about 50 degrees. We came home, messed around. You know, we were watching whatever on um on the television or whatever, and we were watching something on YouTube. I don't remember what it was. But it, anyway, the, uh, Suzanne looked out about 6.30. Uh, so, you know, an hour and a half, two hours later, she looked out, and there was snow on the back deck. And so our son, Will, works at Biltmore, at the Biltmore house here in Asheville, and he works in the winery and had to work until, I think, 7 o'clock that night or something. So we had noticed it was snowing, and, and then about 7.30-ish, he called, and said he had he was leaving the estate and his car had slid off into a ditch somehow and so he said hey can you all come and get me so yep sure um we'll try and then we went out and got in the truck and started trying to head down the hill we live about 600 feet above the main road so we had to have to go down that hill we finally got out of the driveway and started heading down the hill and just as we came into a 90 degree turn there's a car coming up the hill and so I braked and slowed down, which means that I did what? That means I slid down the hill. And we bumped into that other car. Um, and I said, we can't do this. It was coming down like a blizzard. It was insane out there. And so we turned around and came back up the hill. And um, unfortunately, <laughs> those people couldn't get traction again to get up the hill. So anyway, hopefully there's not much damage to, to her car. So... It was just a typical Green family Christmas. Something had to go weird or wrong or whatever, and that's just perfectly fine. As I told Suzanne, when we came back inside, it feels like, oh, no, here we are. It's a wonderful life. Um, we were having wrecks, and we're going to be separated at Christmas. It was just you know, one of those things. So it's just one of the things that happens in life, and you just kind of get up and you move on. And Will was able to get home yesterday, and so we had celebration with him late yesterday afternoon. So... Glad to be here with you today. It's still snowy outside, snow still on the ground. It should be gone by later today, but it was beautiful while it lasted, frankly. It was really, uh, it was a nice surprise, really, for Christmas because we certainly were not expecting anything like that. So, anyway, it's been nice. I've been indoors and taking it easy and um, just kind of getting ready for today for this. So, here we go. We're going to talk about um, one of my favorite passages of all time, my, my, probably my favorite passage of Scripture, which is the first 18 verses of John's Gospel. Still remarkable thing to me, every time I read it, to think about this man who was a fisherman writing something as beautiful and wondrous and awe-inspiring as that those first 18 verses of John's Gospel. It's, a, it's an incredibly well-written thing. And for a long time, people presumed, uh, or at least said out loud, that John's Gospel was written for Gentiles in a way that Matthew's gospel was written for 
Jews. And the reason they say that Matthew's gospel was written for Jews is because he, more than any other gospel writer, speaks about fulfilled prophetic words from Scripture. And so he's, they say that he's trying to prove something to the Jewish people that Jesus is indeed that Messiah because of the number of prophecies that he fulfilled in his birth, life, death, and resurrection. And they will say John's is much more of a gospel written to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, because of the Greek that he uses in part, but also because of the sort of uh, not prophetic um, things that he's talking about. He's talking about philosophical issues and that's kind of the way that people have tended to look at John's gospel and I'm going to tell you that I disagree I'm going to tell you that I disagree I couldn't disagree in fact much more because the proofs Jesus offers that John offers in fact are the proofs of his um, messianic kingship as foretold by the prophet and he's fulfilling things and so he, the, the titles by which Jesus refers to himself like light of the world, good shepherd um, all that are actually fulfillment of Jewish messianic expectations so it's and i believe that even this first 18 verses which is what people say is the philosophical underpinning of the entire gospel i'm going to argue today in this message that those themselves are deeply embedded in the jewish psyche and particularly at that time these ideas are embedded in the jewish psyche at that time and the expectations and so so i'm going to argue the very opposite of what most people will say about john's gospel so the first thing that we have to do is we, we have to, I want to look back all the way to the Isaiah passage first. And it's the way in which Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah. Um, and so I will, this is Isaiah 61, 10 through 62, 3. It begins with, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. And that's a great place to begin because that should be our reaction to the work of Jesus Christ. It should be our reaction to the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and coming again. We, uh, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. There's a sort of rapturous sense of adoration that's caught up in that. And there's a reason for that kind of rejoicing, though. It's for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. It's not an internal thing to me. It's something that's put on to me. Like we put on Jesus' righteousness like a cloak. It's an external righteousness that's intended to become an internal righteousness through praise and through a life lived in obedience to him. And then he says, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations." For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. So the, the response to the work of Jesus which begins with the incarnation, is to greatly rejoice. And then not only just to rejoice, but for Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. In other words, the old song, Go Tell It on a Mountain, 
is the is what we should be doing. That that should capture who we are and what we are. We should be those who go tell it on a mountain, over the hills and everywhere, that Jesus Christ is born. Salvation has come into the world, and along with that has come hope as well. And so we're called to be those people who go out and proclaim Jesus, his beauty, his righteousness, and what he has done for us. And all those things are incredibly important to us, and we should constantly be speaking of those things as Christians. And so that's that Old Testament passage from Isaiah that he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And that's what we want. That's what we need because we have been not covered ourselves in glory. And so it's if we're looking for that alien righteousness, the righteousness that comes from outside of us, from Jesus, <clears throat> rather than looking for our own self-satisfaction and, and believing that we are somehow righteous because we don't do this and we do do that, then we've not really understood righteousness because it's not just doing, it's also thinking, it's also being, and it's also more than. And that's what Jesus comes to say in the Sermon on the Mount, which is, oh, you think you've done this well, do you? Mm-hmm. Well, have you ever lusted after a woman in your heart? Because if you have, then you've committed adultery. And, and he goes on with those things um, and challenges us to come to a deeper understanding. And that's part of the message of Paul in the letter to the Galatians, the passage we read there. It's two separate passages combined into one, and it's Galatians 3, 23 to 25, and Galatians 4, 4 to 7. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And the word for guardian there really is a word for pedagogue, which is a teacher. So uh, wealthy families would, uh, would get a pedagogue to come and teach their children in the way that he should go. And that pedagogue needed to share the same values as the parents. It was not just a matter of teaching them things like reading, writing, and arithmetic. It was also how to live, what the way that the uh, morals and ideals of that of the father, typically in the family, were. And so that pedagogue was to spend their time. Basically, the child would live at all times in the presence of the pedagogue. I don't mean he went to live with the pedagogue. The pedagogue came to live with them and taught the child up in the way that it should go. Does that sound familiar? You should have heard that somewhere in Scripture too. But what Paul says is the law acted as a pedagogue, not just to children, but to all. That the law was a pedagogue teaching something and, and, and forming people in a certain way. Paul will say to the Romans that we're not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of the mind. And so the mind is an important part of this. It's the mind and the heart working together that form a person into who they are. And Paul says you've got to learn to think differently. He's telling that to the Romans and, and saying that, that you've got to be transformed and not conformed. The purpose of the law, Paul's arguing here, is to conform you to certain ideals, to make you into the kind of person God wants you to be. And then he says, now that faith has come, we've been released from that guardian because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 
And so Paul says that, that we're no longer slaves, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. In every way, he became like us. He became under the law in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So remember what I said in the beginning was is the father hired the pedagogue to raise up a child to be like the father, to think like the father, to, to believe the things the father does, the things the father values. The child is learning the values of the father through the pedagogue. And Paul says that's exactly what it looks like here. And the purpose of the pedagogue in that relationship was to make that child a, a, a mini version, a copy, if you will, of the father of the child. And so Paul says that's exactly the relationship of us to the law. But then once faith comes, once the Holy Spirit has been poured out through the work of Jesus, then now you're growing up into full sonship. You're becoming moving away from the pedagogue and into full sonship with the giving of the Holy Spirit. You can become like the Father. And then Paul says, better than that, because you're sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So we no longer long for the pedagogue. doesn't mean the pedagogue's work had no purpose. It conformed us in a certain way to the law because it's God's word working in us. And God's spirit working in us isn't going to say something in contradiction to God's word. So we need to know the word to know what it would look like. The pedagogue is important, but then the freedom comes from the giving of the Holy Spirit to interpret that law in any given circumstance. So how we live and how we carry out God's will for our lives and in our lives is, is going to look different because of the presence of the Holy Spirit helping us to interpret the law in and through our lives, just as it did with Jesus. Because, you know, what is it that he is consistently accused of? You're teaching your disciples, for instance, things that are unlawful as they go through the field on a Sabbath and they begin to break off the heads of grain and to crush them between their hands so that they can release that which is edible. They're said to have committed sin. Jesus commits sin, supposedly, according to them, by healing on the Sabbath by making mud and putting it on a man's eyes and then calls it, he worked by doing that and then he caused the man to work by walking further than he could have. This is the man born blind in John 9 and so on and on it goes that Jesus is, is criticized and accused of being a sinner when in fact what he's always saying is, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath if your donkey's in a ditch? Isn't it lawful to get that donkey out. And so there's there's all kinds of ways in which Jesus is accused of being a lawbreaker, but what he's actually saying and showing and then telling us through setting us free through the power of the Holy Spirit to do is to live a life lived in accordance with the law, but God's interpretation of that law in a given circumstance in our lives. And so that's the the way in which the law still has force in our lives. But we have freedom also, and it's what Nietzsche talked about in Beyond Good and Evil as this long obedience in the same direction. What he says is the best art, the best music, the best dance, the best whatever, best thinking actually, he says, only comes after a long obedience to a law of some sort. And then once we've internalized that law to a certain point in our lives, then we begin to have more freedom within the rules 
because we've learned the rules and we've used those rules and we've submitted ourselves to a discipline for a long period of time. And only those who have submitted to a discipline for a long period of time can then have the freedom to operate within that discipline. And so that's what Paul's saying to us here. And then now we come to this, this glorious gospel lesson that we're given today. And I want to talk a little bit about how I believe this is an intrinsically Jewish thought process that John's using here. And so we're going to stray a little bit into the field of, of mystical and Talmudic Judaism today just so I can show you kind of where things are coming from and why John's thinking this way because it brings new things to light on our understanding. If we accept all this, then what it's doing, What I, my goal always whenever we I talk about the Jewish aspects of all this is to open you up more actually to the Old Testament as well and see how the interplay of the old and the new work and see how God's doing a new thing, but it's based on the old thing. It's based on that idea of a long obedience in the same direction, but it but it's showing you how Jesus was foretold, not just in the Word of God, but but in the Jewish minds and how God was preparing them to receive a particular kind of Messiah. And when Jesus uses certain terms for himself, how that comes into play. So it's, it begins so beautifully. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So huge concepts, right? I mean, the beginning was was the Word. He was there right from the start. There was never a time when there was not him. Jesus wasn't there because he's the Word. And it says the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Huh. That's a lot. <laughs> That's an awful lot to unpack there, to say that the Word was with God and the Word was God. And so that's how we come to the creed, and we come to the idea that whatever God is made of, Jesus is made of. He is one substance, one being with the Father. But that's also all of this, where it begins with, he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. Would it surprise you to know that in the first century, Rabbi Eliezer in the Talmud actually says exactly that? What he said in the Talmud is, is that the way that God created the world was he looked at Torah and built a world based on the Torah, the five books of Moses. So that Torah preexisted, and this is the way they look at Torah. And so we know more than that, right? Because we know Jesus is Torah. Jesus is the Word. And so it's, it's not Torah through which he does this, but, but they're being prepared for the idea that the world was made through the Word of God, the Torah. And it was made according to him, that he is the first principle behind which all things, on which all things are built. Jesus is the foundation stone. He is the firstborn of all creation, but he was created before the foundation, not created, he, he was before the foundation of the world that the idea of Jesus dying on the cross preceded every single bit of that. God foresaw what would become of his own creation. And that even though he created on principle of his word, he gave us free will. 
by which we might even reject that word and move in a different direction. And that's a statement of the original creation, that we were created with free will. Martin Luther makes the argument that because of sin, our wills are bound now. They're no longer truly free in any sense of the word until we come to Jesus. And then we, we do have a certain freedom, but, but only to the extent that sin is being eradicated from our lives. We need the Holy Spirit to be able to make those choices. Without Him, we have the illusion of free will. And so, in all of this, Rabbi Eliezer says God is, is using the Torah as the principle and the guidelines by which He draws up the earth and, and does all of creation. And so, the, the people, the rabbis, are being prepared for this idea right here in John's Gospel that he is the principle of creation. He is a principle in either way you want to spell it, P-R-I-N-C-I-P-L-E or P-R-I-N-C-I-P-A-L. He is that, that thing through which things, that all things are created. God speaks everything into existence. We've got the Word of God there through all of that, and the Word that he speaks is Jesus, and through Jesus all things are created, and all things hang together in him, but they're created according to the principle of Jesus. They were created to point towards him in the end of all things. And so they see the principle of creation being Torah, that it's the blueprint, actually, is the words that they will use for all creation. And then what does John say once he moves beyond that? He says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so what is this light? Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And so what is this light that John's speaking about here? Well, it's the primordial light. It's that first light of creation, the very first thing God speaks into existence. God said, let there be light. And that light is not the sun, moon, and stars. Those are created later to fill the heavens. Once the heavens are created, then he can fill those with the sun, moon, and stars, and then later fill the heavens with the birds. But beginning is light. It's this other kind of light, and it's, this, it's the light that's prior to all creation. And part of the purpose of, of the writing of that creation story the way it is, the giving of it by God to Moses, is, is that it's pointing to the fact that don't worship any of the things that are created, but there should be a wonder about this light that existed before. And the way that the, the Jewish rabbis, again, in the first century were, were interpreting that light, thinking about that light, is they said it was the light by which a man could see from one end of creation to the other, which means not just across space, but across time as well. And that, that what they posited later was that that light had to be dimmed and taken away because of sin coming into the world. And that, if, that now that man's nature was irrevocably sinful, the problem would be if you could see across space and time through that particular light, then what would happen is, is that you would be able to see the results of whatever action you might take. And, and God couldn't allow that to happen in a sinful, busted, and broken world. There had to be something other than that. And so that light had to be dimmed. And so they said that light was taken away. Now, further, what they'll say is, is that, that this whole idea for Adam and Eve about being naked and unashamed, and then after sin comes into the, to, to the picture, they become naked and ashamed, 
is is that prior to that they were covered in garments of light such that they had no um, reckoning that they were naked because the light covered them like garments which I mentioned before. He has clothed me with garments of salvation and covered me with a robe of righteousness. And so their their sense was that they indeed were wearing something. And then once sin comes into the world, and that, that, the, that light was the Shekinah glory of God, which had been given to them as authentication of their special role as, as guardians of creation. And so that brought respect and also some fear into the animal kingdom of them. And so when that happens, now they, they commit sin. They say that those were taken away, and that's the reason why they sewed fig leaves together. And then God gave them garments of, of skin, and so animal skins. And so there's a fear now. The fear is different. The fear is, I could kill an animal. And so there's a fear of man that's different, and it has to be changed. The relationship with all of creation changes with sin coming into the world. And so creation itself participates in the fall at that point. And so they say that, that that's that light, and that light now has to go. And then when do you see that light coming back? Well, it's when the tabernacle is dedicated in Exodus 40, and the Shekinah glory of God fills that tabernacle, and that tabernacle becomes the light in the darkness during the, during the night that guides them on their journeys in the wilderness, but it's guiding them wherever God wants them to go, not to the destination they had in mind because they can no longer go there because of sin of the spies and the fear of the people of the land. And so that glory, that light, continues to guide them, and then it comes into the temple when the temple is dedicated in Solomon's time. And the, the interesting thing about the way Solomon built the temple was in the Holy of Holies, the place where the altar of incense were and where the, the lights stood, the candle stands, the lamp stands stood, was those windows in that part of the temple were exactly the opposite of the way we make windows. We, we funnel light from outside in whenever we have like a concrete building or whatever with wider openings on the outside of those windows than we do on the inside because it's funneling the light. Solomon built the temple exactly the opposite of that because it's the, the true light, the light that enlightens every man was light of the Torah coming from the Holy of Holies. And so those windows are exactly the opposite. They're wider on the inside than they are on the outside because that light needs to escape and come into the world to enlighten every man. And when Jesus says he's the light of the world, that's the light that he's claiming to be. It's the light that shines in the darkness, John says, and the darkness has never overcome it. And so Jesus is that light from beginning. And when do we see that? When do we see the opposite of what I told you happened with Adam and Eve? When they lose their garment of light in the transfiguration, we see exactly the reverse occurring, that the righteousness of Christ comes from within him and transfigures his garments so that they were whiter than any fuller could make them. And therefore, it, the, the righteousness was not like the righteousness of Moses, which was reflected on his face after an encounter with a living God. It's the opposite of that. It's the glory, the Shekinah glory of God shining out from Jesus in the same way Solomon had in mind for the temple. And so you see with all these things, what you're seeing is that idea of Judaism was preparing for 
a certain kind of Messiah, and he doesn't just fulfill prophecies. He fulfills the teaching that God's been giving to these rabbis and these other spiritual leaders. But would they have eyes to see him? And what John says next is there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, the one we've been talking about, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, the Lord saves, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And then the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We'll stop just for a second on this matter of grace and truth, and again, prepare you for this. For a long, long time within Judaism, there's been a different, another idea, and that there's two sides of God's nature, and those two sides are called justice and mercy. And that, that a world can exist with strict justice because the first transgression is the end of transgression. And it can't exist just on mercy because people can't be allowed to get away with harming others, for instance. So they, they saw those as two aspects of God's nature, both of which are important and both of which have to be held in tension with one another. And so here what John says is, is that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we've seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Justice and mercy, grace and truth, same principles that are going on there. And what they also further say is, is the way we can know that God has those dual, that dual nature in one is the creation of male and female. Because before Eve is created, it says that male and female created he them. And that's before we have an Eve. And so how is Eve created? Eve's created out of Adam. So in a sense, she existed at the moment Adam was created, Eve had been created too because she was a part of his creation and pulled out of him, not separate from him. And so they say that points to this dual nature of God that's expressed in the male and the female created he them. And the reason that that happens in creation is because it's not good for man to be alone. And, and so if, if that's the case, if that's true, and we know it is because God said it, then is it good for God to be alone? And so from that principle, you can draw forth this in the beginning, he was with God, and in the beginning, he was God. We need a dual expression in male and female. We need one another. It makes us complementary beings that need one another. And so... Then he goes on to say, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. From his fullness, Jesus's, we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And it doesn't mean that grace didn't exist in the world, and, it, and nor does it mean that it, did, that it didn't exist within Judaism. It most certainly did. But Jesus came and embodied the principles of grace and truth in exactly the right measure in a way that no one has before him or since because he was not only with God, he is God. 
And so he comes to expose to us the way that tension is to be lived out in life between grace and truth. And then John goes on to say, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So you can see that these are deeply Jewish principles which John speaks here. And that's important because what it means is it validates the Old Testament as having something to say to us, but it means Jesus is the fulfillment of the ideal of God in creation, not only of all creation, but of specifically in the creation of mankind. And so if we want to know who we should be, if we want to know how to live, if we want to know if the spirit that's telling us to do any given thing is true or not, then we need to look to the life of Jesus and see how grace and truth come together in him and are lived out through his life. It's the journey that we're called to, is to continually look to Jesus, learn from Jesus, and pray from him because he is the fulfillment of the purpose for mankind. He is the perfect man because he is without sin. He is the perfect man because he bears the exact imprint of the nature and image of God in him. So if you want to know who you should be and you want to know how to orient your life, then keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus and follow him in all things. Your chance starts again today.